0: hundred different religions on planet Earth, and they represent a whole lot of variety and a many, many outrageous beliefs and practices, um, a whole lot of fanciful claims. Uh, but there is only one that has the distinction of being the only major religion that claims that its principal character claimed to be God in the flesh. And that that principal character lived in such a way that he willfully sacrificed his body as a sacrifice to cover a penalty of the sins of of his people and that he then proved that he was God and as the author of life and can command life to anybody is the judge over all life by commanding life to come back to his own body and doing something that no one in human recorded history has ever done other than the one who claimed it. There is only one of those 4,200 religions that says that, that claims that. And there's a whole lot of significance attached to whether or not that really happened, historically actually happened. Today we want to explore that a little bit. I want to invite you to look in the Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have access to a Bible, turn there. Have free Bibles if you don't have one. We'd love for you to be able to see it for yourself. Because by its own admission, by its own admission, Christianity will say if the resurrection isn't true, if it didn't happen, then everything else is, is pointless. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14. The Apostle Paul, the primary teacher and expander of Christianity after all these events, Said it this way If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, then we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead, but He did not raise Him, if he, in fact he, the dead are not raised. If He didn't rise from the dead, that means that Jesus of Nazareth is a very compelling personality. A very effective teacher, he obviously had carried a lot lot of influence, and he had an an example worth following and a philosophy worth paying attention to, but ultimately, he was misguided. Ultimately, he did not have power. Ultimately, he was proven to be not who he said he was, if he did not rise from the dead. But if he did, if that event actually, physically, in reality, in time and space occurred, then it substantiates... All his other claims, as audacious as a whole lot of them are, about his sole authority over heaven and earth, over him being part of the creation of the world, of him existing pre- before recorded history, of him being eternally God. All of that is true, and it also substantiates the fact that he is the holder of the keys of life. He's the one who determines whether people have life or not, both now and in eternity. Everything pivots on this one thing, did or did not this happen? Which is why it's not, no surprise, probably, that it's been argued about a whole lot. And a whole lot of debate and intense challenge has happened about the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Perhaps only second only to the question of whether God exists at all is the question, did Jesus rise from the dead? And so... We want to just take some time today as we on the front end of a week that leads up to the the day where as followers of Jesus Christ, I am one of them, we say this is our day. This is the day. This is the day that changes everything. As we enter into that week, let's step back and ask an honest set of questions. We're going to ask some questions that are going to start with, with this, about whether this actually happened or not. And the first question that gets asked sometimes is this, did Jesus really live was there? Now, by the way, we're not gonna. If we had a week, we could cover all this. We're gonna we're gonna fly through this. But we're. But I want to ask: you, if it's true, it's going to stand up to some scrutiny. So then, the, so the question gets asked, and some people have challenged: Did this? Was there actually a man named Yeshua from a town in Galilee, a small town, Nazareth, which was pretty undescript, and they didn't have a whole lot going, no no fanfare about it? Was there actually a real historical human being? who went by that name, who uttered the words that are recorded, and who actually went and was executed by Rome in Jerusalem in the, in the time that it was described. Is it possible that he really that, that name just came to represent a concept or an idea or represent a philosophy of thought? Because let's face it, that happens a lot. It's happened in our lifetime. In January tw- uh, 2005, Bobby Henderson, who's a 24-year-old Oregon State University physics graduate, wrote a letter to the Kansas State Board of Education because of the debate that was going on about whether intelligent design would be taught in Kansas schools. And as a concerned citizen, he said, he wanted to say that he was concerned that his views were overlooked because he felt like there was as much evidence for the existence of that as there is for his deity, who he described as, and some of you know, the flying spaghetti monster. Now, It was obvious from that time that when people rallied around this that the flying spaghetti monster concept as a deity represents something. Even Bobby Henderson would say he doesn't believe there is such an entity. It just represents an idea, an alternative to other ideas. And even though you might say, well, there's no proof of such a thing and it seems ridiculous and its point is to be kind of ridiculous, to make a point, it represents an amalgam of ideas is it possible that the idea of jesus of nazareth is really just an amalgam of ideas it represents a thought so so the question is did the guy actually really live now what you need to do then is you use whatever means there are to historically look and ask the question is there a record that this actually happened it gets argued that the Bible isn't a historical record, but it's the, it's the Bible. It was written by believers, so therefore it's untrustworthy. It is, however, an early document registering the beliefs of people and the histories of that day. And it has been studied and analyzed and refuted by some or attempted to, and then compared to other historians of the day, in particular Josephus, the Jewish historian who was not a follower of Jesus, was not a Christian, and it's interesting that if you read Josephus and you read other historians of the day, there's something that's written in 1 John chapter 1 that is absolutely affirmed by those who are simply recording history. When 1 John 1 says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this is what we're proclaiming regarding the word, the representation, this person of life. The life appeared. We This is important. We saw it. We have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Secular historians verified the fact that all the things that you look for to find out whether something ever happened in history are recorded. It is not just a fanciful idea that you can just come up with. There was actually records of this person living, so his lineage is mentioned. People who have been substantiated to have been alive were his parents and his grandparents, and beyond that, on the human side. Those who record what was happening politically mention him and his influence. Specifics are given to his birthplace, and the year it happened, and the residence he was in, and the, and the movements. And it is largely undisputed by honest historians that there is more evidence to support Jesus of Nazareth being alive a real person than there is almost any other person in his age not just those who claim to be his followers so he is he's a real person and most of his words despite some attempts in our generation to try to discredit them say some verify that he said the words that are that are recorded for us can i just read you some of the words that he said if he's a real man And he's worth paying attention to just because he's a historical figure who's made some claims. Well, what are those claims? I'm just going to read it from John chapter 5, verse 20 and following. This is what he said about himself. The father, God the father, loves the son. He's talking about himself and shows him all he does. By the way, Jesus talked in the third person sometimes. Does that seem cocky to you? If anybody can talk in the third person about themselves, I think I'm going to give him a little leeway. This is what he says, verse uh, 21. Just as a father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son, he's talking about himself, he grants life to whom he is pleased to give it. By the way, this is blasphemy. Immediately seen as blasphemy, and if you read this passage, you'll see that those around him said, you can't say that. You cannot say that because by doing so, you claim to be deity. You claim to have authority that is not yours. Moreover, he doesn't stop there. The Father judges no one. He has entrusted all judgment to the Son. In other words, the one standing in front of you, the one right here, me, I'm the one who's going to determine your standing forever with God. I mean, is that bold? And he, and he says, uh, I've lost my place, but it's really good. Okay, verse 22. <laughs> verse 23. So that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the, son, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as a father has life, listen to this, as the father has life in himself, right? God has life in himself. The, the picture of God is the, is the giver, and author of life. As he has life in himself, so he's granted the son to have life in himself. Command over it. And he's given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Again, if you read that, you see that this person, if he's real, then those, and those claims are real, and there's no reason to doubt historically that he made those claims. He is somebody who's saying he, he's, to be, he's to be reckoned with. And so the person was real, the execution was real, the claims were real, so then it asks this question. So did Jesus really die? Meaning, was he dead when it's recorded that it sure appeared he was dead? See, the re- the reanimation claim is fantastical, right? The idea that somebody could just f- command life to return to themselves, you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. Not only had he claimed to raise other people from the dead, he's saying... He's going to do what no one in history has ever done or ever has had even mild success trying to convince anybody they were capable of doing. So, did, so the question is, okay, well, maybe he didn't really die. Perhaps logic would suggest that there's much more rational, defensible alternatives to actually what was happening there. And that's what, in fact, the Quran says, which was written in the 7th century after Christ, Actually mentions Christ, and the Quran suggests that he actually did not die on the cross. He came down and he actually moved to India where he died later. And so then you get theories like what one has, what has been popular through history now and then, called the swoon theory, which says that the trauma of the of the punishment was such that he went into kind of a, a coma. And then the quick removal from the cross masked the fact that he hadn't fully perished yet. He just looked like he had. He was resuscitated, and the disciples aided his recovery. And in order to think through that, and I want you to hang with me for a minute on this, and I don't want, I'm gonna hope that you don't get squeamish about this, but we need to understand a little bit about medically what happens, what happened at the crucifixion, what happened even before that. Because in Matthew 27, you'll, you see this, it just says it almost matter-of-factly. This is, this is when he's being accused, and the people are calling for him to, to be put to death. And it says, All the people answered, Let his blood be on us and on our children. And so then they, he released, this is Pilate, Pontius Pilate, released Barabbas to them, who was a prisoner. He offered a prisoner exchange kind of thing. But then it says this, it's just one sentence. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now, you've heard that. You probably haven't lived in our culture without understanding what that's about. Some of that has been depicted. But perhaps it's worth. If the, if the question is whether he really died that day or whether perhaps he was survived, it is worth our attention just for a little bit to say what exactly happens in that last sentence. He delivered him to be flogged. I was beaten quite severely as a child on multiple occasions. I never deserved any of them. Just want you to know. It's always my brother. It was his fault. And so I think, oh, I know what it's like to get beat pretty hard. But none of us have ever been remotely that I know of in a position where we have been what is said there when it says that, that Jesus was flogged. And, and I'm going to refer, I'm going um, to borrow substantially today from a couple authors who were atheistic authors who have written on this subject and explored the veracity of the claims of the resurrection and, have come, and then came to the conclusion that what they were trying to refute they couldn't, and it was true. Josh McDowell did that a, a generation ago, or two generations ago really now. Lee Strobel did it in the last generation. And in their books, they quote some guys, and I'm going to infer from them and some, from some others. And one of, one of the sources is a man named Alexander Metherell, who is a, uh, a, a well, well-respected physician and a PhD of a medical doctor and a research scientist at the University of California. Here's what he says about Roman floggings. If you just, let me just read some of this to you. They were known to be terribly brutal. The soldier would use a whip or braided leather thongs with metal balls woven into them. When the whip would strike the flesh, these balls would cause deep bruises or contusions, which would break open upon further blows, usually 39 blows, sometimes more. And the whip had pieces of of sharp bone as well, which would cut the flesh severely. The back would be so shredded that part of the spine was sometimes exposed by the deep cuts. I'm not trying to be extravagant here. I just want you to get a feel, okay? So hang with me. The whipping would would have gone all the way from the shoulders down to the back, the buttocks, and the back of the legs. As the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. The sufferer's veins were laid bare, and the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. We know that many people would die from this kind of beating even before they would be crucified. We had it in one sentence. He delivered him to be flogged. But that's part of what was experienced there. It goes on there because it said, and then he delivered him to be crucified. Dr. Methrell goes on to talk about several things that happened during the crucifixion process, which I'm sure you've seen depicted. But he, he says that it was almost a universal thing that anybody crucified would, would go into hypovolemic shock, which is suffering from the effects of losing large amounts of blood, which, he said, which do four things. First, the heart races to try to pump more blood that isn't there. The blood pressure then drops, causing fainting or collapse. The thir- kidneys stop, producing urine to maintain the volume. And fourth, the person becomes then very, very thirsty. And the body craves fluids to replace the blood lost blood volume. So there's a reason why Jesus said, I thirst. Most likely in hypovolemic shock. Then there was the nerve damage from where usually it went into the... Sometimes it would put, be put to the hands, but this whole part of the body is considered the hands when it said they put, and, it, and more likely it went through probably the wrist, so the weight could, uh, could be better supported. When that does, there is the, the, uh, the median nerve runs through that area. It's the largest nerve out of the hand. It would be crushed by the nail. It was pounded into. This is the analogy that gets used. They, they say, you know, you have an ulna nerve that if you hit it, your funny bone, if you hit it, it, what, you have an effect, okay? Imagine that nerve similarly being not just hit, but crushed, and then perpetual, the perpetual pain, what the, the description that gets used is like taking a pair of pliers and squeezing and crushing that nerve. That effect would be similar to what Jesus experienced. The hoisting effects of having been nailed to the cross and putting him upright and falling down would have immediately stretched out his, probably by average about six inches of give would happen among his shoulders so that the shoulders would be dislocated. That's determined by basic mathematics. So more than likely, that movement caused what was foretold about the, the suffering Messiah in Psalm 22 when it says, I am poured out like water and my bones are out of joint. And then there's, there was asphyxiation. Let me just read again from Dr. Methrel. The, uh, the stresses on the muscles and diaphragm put the chest into the exhaled position. Basically, in order to exhale, the individual must push up on the feet so the tension on the muscles would be eased for a moment. In doing so, the nail would tear through the foot, eventually locking up against the tarsal bones. After managing to exhale, the person would then be able to relax down and take another breath. Again, he'd have to push him up, himself up to exhale. Scraping his bloody back against the coarse wood of the cross. This would go on until complete exhaustion would take over and the person would not be able to physically push up anymore. Asphyxiation often caused the death on the cross for people who were crucified. And then there's the heart. And as the person slows down his breathing when, when they're crucified, they go into what's called respiratory, respiratory acidosis. Carbon dioxide in the blood is dissolved as carbonic acid. It causes acidity. acidity at acidity, yes, I get it. In the blood to increase, at re- least irregular heartbeat. The hypovolemic shock would cause sustained hap- rapid heartbeat. I don't want to. I, I don't want to go. Just dive all the way into this. But here's what happened. Two things happened: pericardial effusion and pleural plural effusion, which would cause the formation of water to form around the heart and around the lungs. So that, assuming that. There was a, this, where the spear that was thrust in the side of Jesus went into the right lung near and into the heart, when it was pulled out, there would be two kinds of fluid that would come out. Pericardial effusion, am I doing okay? Pericardial effusion and the, it would come out. It would have had the appearance of clear fluid like water followed by a large volume of blood. In John 19, the eyewitnesses said, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow, of blood and water this is what one author said about this they said um, John probably had no idea why he would see both blood and clear fluid come out certainly that's not what an untrained person like him would have anticipated yet John's description is consistent with what modern medicine would expect to have happened and on top of that then the Roman soldiers were under very very strict rules and the Roman soldiers who did executions were very good at killing Very, very well accomplished at doing that. They also, this is just the law of the military in Rome, that if a a prisoner was entrusted to a Roman soldier and the prisoner was sentenced to death, if that prisoner either escaped or was not put to death, the Roman soldier would be put to death. And so, as one author writes, they had huge incentive to make absolutely sure that each and every victim was dead when he was removed from the cross. Now, you put all that together, and you want to use logic now to look at what happened in this historical event, which is not doubted. has been substantiated. Even Some have argued about, well, there's no record. For a while, it was was argued there's no record of nails being driven into the feet. But Jesus said, look at my hands and my feet. And then, lo and behold, archaeological findings find multiple people from the very era where they went through the feet. All of that's going on. Logically, the question that gets asked is, if he would not have even died in that moment, how does somebody like that, what position would they be in when he came down? Would he be in any position to walk? Would he be in any position to be seen on a road walking to Emmaus? Would he be in a position to get from one place to another? Or even to rally people to say, Here's how one David Friedrich Strauss, who was a a German skeptic, and he denied the divine nature of Jesus, but he studied this, and this is what he said. It's impossible that a being who had had stolen half-dead out of the sepulcher, who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening, and indulgence, and while still at last yielded to his sufferings, could have given to the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death and the grave, the prince of life, an impression which lay at the bottom of their future ministry. There was no faking this. He was not mostly dead. The man died. And so then this question comes. And this is more where the focus is. So did Jesus really rise? Was the tomb really empty? I was at, I was at the YMCA and a guy who I get, I get told the funniest jokes when people find out I'm a pastor. Oh, oh, you'll like this one. And they'll tell me this ridiculous joke. It goes, oh, you're a pastor? I got a joke for you. Did you hear they canceled Easter this year? No. Yeah, they found the body. That was a joke. Tired of the joke. Okay, thank you. If they did find the body, they would cancel Easter. I didn't think it was funny, but here's the thing. There's a lot of arguments that get used and then some alternative views. And, we're, and I don't have time to unpack these like I wish we could in one talk. But let me just give you the basics of some of them. And what we can see as an answer to that, and you're in 1 Corinthians 5, right? One of the arguments is, okay, there's no current empirical evidence that this happened. Everything, all this is based on ancient writings of subjective people who, were, who, were, uh, who affirm that they're followers of his. And it, this requires, it necessitates an acceptance of a science-defying factor, resurrection. So the question gets asked, okay, so what gets admittable in a court of law to determine what is factual about a historical event? And what's, what, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, this is the Apostle Paul. He said, Listen, listen to what he says. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you've received and which you've taken your stand, by this gospel you're saved, if you hold firmly to it. Here's what it is, verse 3. I re- what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then the 12, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, meaning he later, at a later period of time. There's something really significant about what would be admissible in a court of law about that evidence, about a historical event. First of all, what is looked for in a court of law is is there physical evidence is a consistent eyewitness account and is a corroboration of the account. At the time where people were still alive who would have seen the event, and this is not centuries later, this will come out later when we talk about legend, the claim was there was physical evidence that there, there's an empty tomb. There's consistent eyewitness accounts. There are people named who saw this, many of whom were still alive. He's kind of like saying, you want to go? Go check. Go ask them. Bring them into court and, and see what they're... Put them under sworn oath. Go ahead. And you will hear that they are still alive. Who would say that? And there's corroboration. It's not just one or two of his followers. It's crowds. There's 500 people at one time. Everything that's admissible in a court of law to prove something as a factual historical event is given in that account. All right, let's keep moving. Okay, well, an alternative thir- theory... Is that it was a hoax, right? It they stole the body. Now think about this. In Matthew 28, this is what the record says happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers who had been guarding the tomb and who had been overcome by fear when the presentation of the power of the angelic announcers was there, and Jesus had risen. They gave him a large sum of money telling them, okay, here's your say this. His disciples came during the night, stole them away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now, if I'm a skeptic, and I'm good at this kind of thing because I am a skeptic for a lot of stuff, I go, yeah, but wouldn't it be just like the followers to write, it's a preemptive strike. They write the story saying people are going to say that the body was stolen. It's the most logical thing. Let's come up with an idea that would dispel that. So let's come up with a, a nut. We're going to plant this idea that there was a bribery involved and that, and that that was the reason that they made up that story. Now, there's a couple things about this. First of all, this by the way, this grants historically that the empty tomb was never questioned. Because if they said they got the wrong tomb, all they would have to do is say, you're at the wrong tomb. Here's the body. Produce the body. All would have, that's all they had to do to refute the claim. So, so they are acknowledging that the tomb is empty, that there is not a body there. So the explanation then is somebody had to have stolen. That's the most, nat- rage, or it's the most natural thing. If the body's not there, somebody has to have moved it. Beyond the multiple sightings, there's a couple reasons why this is really problematic. And here's one that doesn't often get talked about. In the story, and I won't, I'm not going to take the time to invite you to, the, the, the passages are in your program to look up, the, see the story of the accounts, historical accounts. In the historical accounts, the first witnesses who said the tomb is empty and, the, and Jesus presented himself as alive, do you know who they are? The first ones? They're women. There's something really significant about women being presented as witnesses because something is very very true, and want I want to quote a, a historical expert on this uh, William Lane Craig, uh, Institute of Higher, Institute of Philosophy, University of Louvain near Br- Br- uh, Brussels. He says, when you understand the role of women in first century Jewish society, what 's really extraordinary in this is that this empty tomb story would feature women as the discoverers of the empty tomb in the first place. This is just factual history. Women were on a very low rung on the social ladder in first century Palestine. Their old rabbinical sayings have said, let the words of the law be burned rather than delivered to women. Okay, you think it's tough now? Ladies? This is not just equal pay for equal work. This is being seen as almost like subhuman. Then, another one, blessed is he whose children are male, but woe to him whose children are female. You're going to see four little girls dedicated to the Lord this morning. Women's testimony was regarded as so worthless that they weren't even allowed to serve as legal witnesses in a Jewish court of law. In light of this, it's absolutely remarkable that the chief witnesses to the empty tomb are these women who were friends of Jesus, Any later legendary account would have certainly portrayed male disciples at discovering the tomb, like Peter and John, which later are invoked. The fact that women are the first witnesses to the empty tomb is most plausibly explained by the reality that, like it or not, they were the discoverers of the empty tomb. This shows that the Gospel writers faithfully recorded what happened, even if it was embarrassing. It speaks the historicity of this tradition rather than its legendary status, which again we're going to talk about in just a minute. But the other thing that's true about this has to do with the fact that overnight, these 11 men and others around them, overnight there's something that happens to them. Acts 5 records what they're like after this resurrection claim. Peter, the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. This is in a public square. This is a formal announcement. He's going to pay a price for saying this. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. We are witnesses of these things, right? Then he says, the "The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Here's a a statement that gets made that people don't don't die for a lie very often. Now, sometimes people do. We see people in our world who are willing to die for what we think is a lie. But the difference is, people don't normally die for something that they know is a lie. They absolutely know it. If this happened, they know it's a lie. They created the lie. And the the transformation is that one day these are groveling cowards who aren't willing to associate with him in any way whatsoever. And three days later, they're standing in the public square. They're getting beaten for this. They're willing to die for this. And and there's multitudes of them. It's not just one or two of them. People are ready to be martyred. They believe this thing so much. In all the history of mankind, it's said, people... There's never been a group of people who, w- who have been known to die for something they all knew at the time was a lie. J.P. Moreland, USC director in philosophy, says, Muslims might be willing to die for their belief that Allah revealed himself to Muhammad. But this revelation was not done in pub- publicly observable way, so they could be wrong about it. They may sincerely think it's true, but they can't know for a fact because they didn't witness it themselves. However, the apostles were willing to die for something they had seen with their own eyes and touched with their own hands. They were in the unique position, not just to believe Jesus rose from the dead, but to know for sure. And when you've got 11 credible people with no ulterior motives, with nothing to gain, and a lot to lose, who all agree they observed something with their own eyes, now you've got some difficulty explaining that away. Pascal, the, the French philosopher, said, the allegation that the apostles were imposters is quite absurd. Let us follow the charge to its logical conclusion. Let's picture these 12 men meeting after the death of Jesus Christ, and then entering into a conspiracy to say he's risen. That would have constituted an attack upon both the civil and the religious authorities. The heart of man is strangely given to fickleness and change. It's swayed by promises, tempted by material things. If any one of these men had yielded temptation so alluring, in other words, if they had kind of given, renounced it or given way to the more compelling arguments of prison or torture, all, they, all, they all would have been lost. It would have undone, but to a man... Every one of those people who had not been willing to stand with him at all, not only embraced this statement, they were willing to die excruciating deaths for him. Here's a list of the, of the 12 who followed after Jesus, including one, one of his followers who wasn't part of the 11 originally. And would you just look at how they died and you hear the stories about this. This is all historically substantiated fact about these men. What is it, five out of them I think, were crucified themselves before, yeah, I think five. All but one did not die a natural death. And they all were put to death for the claim that they were making. Josh McDowell, who was one of the writers I've been quoting, said, Yes, a lot of people have died for a lie, but they thought it was the truth. Now, if the resurrection didn't take place, the disciples knew it. Therefore, these 11 men not only died for a lie, here's a catch. They knew it was a lie. It would be hard to find 11 people in history who died for the same lie, knowing it was a lie. In fact, some have taken that statement, have, have researched history, and there is not a single documented case in human history where that many people, knowing that something was a lie, were willing to die for it. They still had some belief that there was some truth in what they were dying for. I can read more, but I'm, I'm going to keep, keep going about this. So then, so, so you, you ask the question, okay, so maybe, maybe that's not an, a an alter, good alternative. So what about this thing about it becoming a legend? Because that happens a lot, right? There's a lot of legends in our world. There's a legend of Atlantis and the Fountain of Youth and Helen... Of Troy and then and, and, the, and the brothers Grimm, how did they put it? They said legend is, is folklore with some historical grounding. And so you've got examples of that kind of thing. Robin Hood, and, and especially King Arthur. There's some historical grounding, and then over time, legend emerges. Perhaps this is that's what happened with this Jesus guy. Perhaps well-meaning people who want it. they just wishful thinking as time goes on and and stories start to get told and that's how legends develop. Perhaps it was a legend. Well, here's here's the things that are are historically required for legend to happen. It has to have a kernel of truth and then it has to have multiple generations of time and it has to have incentive for for a new story to be told. That is true. the, The legend of King Arthur uh, you know, it, it said that uh, King Arthur, if he lived at all, lived in the fifth century, uh, late fifth, early sixth century. But there's no historical record of anything he's done until the ninth century. And in the ninth century, it, it mentions a guy who was in battle. And by the tenth century, all of a sudden, there's stories. By the way, the tenth century is when the kingdom is going into war again and needs a hero to celebrate. And that by then, all of a sudden, you have the first reference of somebody who is said to have killed 960 men single-handedly. 400 years passes in order for that, but that is how legends form. Especially in a day and age that doesn't have technology where word can't spread and ideas can't spread very fast. Legend has to have a lot of people saying that. Legend is almost never uh, birthed where in the locale where something happened, because everybody who's there knows what happened. They can refute the stories. And it never, legend never happens when the eyewitnesses are still alive, especially in that day and age. Usually it's hundreds of years, at least multiple generations. And so those who've studied this say that a couple of things are true. Now, if, when you look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and following, what's understood by, by Bible scholars is that that little passage right there is called a creed. It's considered to be the first biblical Christian creed. It was written by Paul probably in 57 to 58 AD. And a creed is a statement of a summary of faith beliefs, foundational faith beliefs. Creeds are based on years of understanding something to be true, being taught as true, and then put down in written form. The source material for that is, is found in the Gospel of Mark, which is said to be the first gospel that was written. And that gospel was written probably within just a couple years after the claim of the resurrection. In that gospel and in this creed, it reflects a statement that did not take hundreds and hundreds of years to happen. It is stated clearly, this is what historically happened. The statements about the resurrection of Jesus were the same from within two years after his death, written down to 2,000 years later. They have not changed in any form. substantive way. They're the same statements. That is not how legend develops or works. And so, one author has five refutations. First of all, the empty tomb tradition of the creed of 1 Corinthians 15. Secondly, the site of Jesus' tomb was known by locals, Christians and Jews alike, easily refuted by those living in the same story where it's being set, the same city where it's being said. The language, grammar, and style of Mark's empty tomb account, which again was written probably in A.D. thirty. Before AD 37, too early for a legend to have seriously corrupted it. And then this is, this is interesting to me. The simplicity of the empty tomb account in Mark, it runs contrary to the development of legend. Here's what, that, here's what I mean by that. 200 years later, you start to see fictitional, apocryphal accounts about the resurrection of Jesus come out. Kind of like legend where people start embellishing the story, the basics of the story a little bit, suddenly there's great displays of power and there's all kinds of other witnesses mentioned. And those, that's the way legends happen. That's the way they read. But those don't come out until generations later, like happened 200 years after Jesus. By contrast, Mark's account of the story, it's stark in its simplicity and it's unadorned by theological reflection and it's the same account that people have today. And then finally, that the the earliest Jewish arguments against the resurrection never questioned that there was an empty tomb. There was nobody who was claiming the tomb still contained Jesus' body because then the question would have been, well, let's find the body. Can we find the body? A.N. Sherwin White, who's a a respected Greco-Roman classical historian at Oxford University, this is his words. It would have been without precedent anywhere in history For legends who have grown up that fast and significantly distorted by the Gospels. In 1844, a German uh, theologian challenged anyone to find a single example of a legend developing that fast anywhere in history. The response from the scholars of his day and the response from scholars in our day is absolute silence. There's no such thing. That's not how legends work. And so we have to find another reason. So I want to give you one more and then turn to where this leads us. And the argument is that the burden of proof for the resurrection does not lie with its detractors or deniers. The burden of proof lies with the claimants. In other words, you want to say Jesus is alive, you got to prove he's alive. Right? It's the same thing we would say about Elvis being alive. How old would Elvis be now? I don't know. Is anybody still saying it? But there were claims Elvis was alive. Well, it's like if you want to claim Elvis was alive, show us Elvis. That, the burden of proof is not on the people who say Elvis has died. They, you know, the proof is that he's alive. That's how the argument goes. But provide the tenable proof now. Like, show us an appearance of him alive. You know, give us a, a time-stamped recording of him alive, and that would be your proof. But here's what we need to understand. That is exactly what God did. That's exactly what he did. This is Acts 1, verse 3. After his suffering, Jesus showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. That's exactly what he did. He proved that he was alive by saying, here's the evidence, here I am. Touch it, feel it. I'm I'm eating with you, this is me. Now, 2,000 years later, he ascended into heaven. The, the, The tractors say, well, that's convenient. Unless it's true. They say, well, but we want to see it again. Show it to us again. The burden of proof switches. See, how many years has it been since the Holocaust? Most of us were not alive when the Holocaust was going on. And so we, so, and sure enough, you have people say, did the Holocaust really happen? We need to have more proof. No, proof was given of the Holocaust. The, the moon landings, we have, we've had 12 men walk on the moon, right? Five of them now have died. There are seven who are still alive. All the rest of the seven are in their 80s. It will not be long before there will not be anybody else alive who can prove by showing us, by testifying in person, that they walked on the moon. And isn't it interesting that we've got people who have said, even from the earliest days, yeah, I'm not so sure about the moon. You can. This is guaranteed. The longer it gets from the time that, that those men die, and we'll have more people who will question whether it ever happened and demand a proof. The point is, the proof was given. Everything was asked for was presented. And that is true for Jesus. And that's why courts of law allow what's called circumstantial evidence for things after the fact. Circumstantial evidence is, is valid evidence to prove something. And the circumstantial evidence that this man rose from the dead is beyond compelling. Because in that list of circumstantial evidence, about Jesus rising, is the fact that skeptics who went into it saying it was impossible, like James' brother and Thomas and, and, the, and Saul of Tarsus. Skeptics walked away from it absolutely willing to die for its veracity. They were converted by, the, by what they saw. Beyond that, the circumstantial evidence says that there were immediate radical change to long-held social mores. You've got Jewish people who are Im- in their, in their religious practices and overnight, several things change. Why would they change so drastically? things like animal sacrifice stopping, because Jesus claimed he had paid once and for all the sacrifice. things like obedience to the law being given reason for the redemption, and people suddenly saying it's not the law, it's grace. Changes like the, the day in which the day of the week that's established for worshiping. I mean, that was one of the ten commandments. You obey the, the Sabbath. It was so embedded. And suddenly, people are saying, doesn't matter, we're going to worship on the day he rose. The switch from monotheism, I mean, if there's anything that was embedded in the Jews, it is there is one God, one God, one God, not multiple gods. And suddenly, people who have, who have been in, in, just had that sealed within them suddenly switches from monotheism to Trinitarianism, saying, oh, there's one God, and he's manifested himself in more than one way. Blasphemy, it's called, but it switches overnight. The circumstantial evidence that all of a sudden the offer of salvation is not offered just to the Jews. It's suddenly wide open and offered to the whole world. It does not happen unless something significant triggers it. That is circumstantial evidence, but it's not alone. The church becomes an institution that overnight becomes a power player in its day. And then you've got the changed ways of people who say they have an encounter with this man risen. These are not people who are not reputable. These are regular law-abiding citizens who are in good mental health, and suddenly they have a radical change going on in their lives because they've encountered him. You put all that together, and it leaves this question. I want to show you just a quick uh, clip from the movie Risen, which is in theaters right now, which takes a fictional Roman uh, soldier character and has him trying to find the body to prove that Jesus is dead and then through the through the series of things you hear this happen. Watch 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 this clip. Or wonder, I keep no one on my behalf. I have seen two things which, which cannot reconcile: a man dead without question, and that same man alive again. I pursue him, the Nazarene, to face the truth. That is the colour, Valerius, night to see. That's the attempt of what's happened since. First Corinthians 15. It leaves skeptics with a really tough, unresolvable problem. What are you supposed to do with this evidence? What are you supposed to do with this? And it, then it raises this question, the last question, Does it really matter? This is what the Apostle Paul had to say about that in First Corinthians 15, verse 17 and following. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep, meaning are dead trusting in Christ, they're lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are more we're to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through also through a man. As in Adam all die, in Christ all can be made alive, each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, and then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, and after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he's put all the enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. You can go on to read what, that, what the significance of that is. Jesus himself said, said it. He says, oh no, it matters. It matters in this way. Because now you have a choice to make. What you do with this. And Jesus said in John 8, if you don't believe that I'm the one I claim to be, you'll indeed die in your sins. Now that's a hard truth, but it's a reality. Because he came to offer an alternative, but it's left to us to decide what we do. It says about him in John 1.12, but to all who received him, To those he believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. C.S. Lewis, the famous author, wrote, wrote, wrote this about Jesus. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Lee Strobel, who wrote a book about, called The Case for Christ, as an atheist, said he came to these conclusions and he realized the implications are, if this is true, then Jesus Christ's teachings are more than just good ideas. They're divine insights on which I can confidently build my life. If Jesus sets the standard for morality, I can now have an unwavering foundation for my choices and decisions rather than basing them on over-shifting, ever-shifting sands of expediency and self-centeredness. He says if he did rise from the dead, he is still alive today and available for me to encounter on a personal basis. He can open the door of eternal life for me too. He has divine power to guide me and help me and transform me. He knows my pain and loss. He can comfort and encourage me. If he loves me, as it says, he has my best interests in heart, which means I have nothing to lose and everything to gain by committing myself to him and his purposes. If Jesus, who he claims to be, and remember, he says, no leader of any other major religion has ever pretended to be God. As my creator, he rightfully deserves my allegiance, my obedience, and my worship. The reason this is given to us is not just so we can have a lively debate about a historical event. It's because if it is true, if Jesus rose from the dead, then my very life and yours whole is held in his hands. And his hands, he says, are willing to give that life to me simply by acknowledging that he is who he says he is and inviting him to give me that gift. Everything pivots on this. Can I just say it bluntly to you? Your eternity pivots on what you do with this claim of Jesus. And we are here to say, we believe. If you haven't believed, the invitation is open to you. Simply believe, embrace it. And who, His life and His power and His eternity become yours. Would you pray with me? If it's true, if it's true, then that means that right now we're not just talking into space. We're not just bowing our heads to some unknown entity. If it's true, then Jesus, you are alive. You are reigning. You are the Lord and God of all. You are the one Savior of the world. For those who might have walked into the room today unsure about this or wrestling with it, I know you're patient. I know you want them to ask the questions. So faced with the evidence and faced with the truth, I want to ask that you would grant them the courage to say, no, I can't deny it. And therefore, I must surrender to it. Make us people who do that. And we could celebrate the fact that the one who conquered death also is one who loves us, who did it out of love for us. That you love us right now. That your hands are open to us and you give us forgiveness and restoration. You give us a life that doesn't end, and it's a good life. It's got the potential to be the best life we can live. Make us people who respond, God, and we will celebrate what your son did on the cross and what he did at the tomb. We'll celebrate what he's done in our lives, not just this week, but in every day of our lives. Thank you for the truth of the risen conqueror of death, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.